Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I'm your host, Michael Kaplan, and we come to you from our studio on the beautiful campus of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. The Silver Halide sessions continue to evolve, presenting in-depth interviews with collectors, historians, aficionados, and archivists. In the previous weeks and months, I've had the opportunity of speaking with a fascinating cross-section of film camera collectors representing our robust film photography community. This episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with one of the pillar stones of that community, and he has taken time from his busy schedule to meet and discuss his film camera collection in depth. Theo Panagopoulos' influence is widespread. His contributions have made me aware of the value of communication and the dissemination of information as we strive to learn more about film cameras and film camera collecting. He has become an effective and long-lasting conduit of that information. So when we return, Theo Panagopoulos, the collector as liaison. And we're back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. Theo Panagopoulos's profound influence on the film photography community is marked by his many contributions, including his role as editor of the popular blog Photo Thinking and co-host of the enormously successful podcast Camerosity with Mike Ekman, Anthony Rue, and Paul Reibolt. A passionate and talented writer and photographer, Theo's interest in film camera collecting and his knowledge of photographic history precedes him today. Welcome, Theo, to the Ephemeral Machine, and thanks for joining us for another Silver Halide session. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm very pleased to be here today. Well, thank you for uh, giving us some of your time today, and uh, we're looking forward to having uh, a little bit of a chat. Um, so why don't we start... Um, I guess where I start with pretty much everybody, um, just getting a sense of um, how you first connected to film photography and, uh, you know, where the uh, initial sort of um, uh, interests started. Yeah, I got into uh, film photography when it was photography and there was, there was no other difference. I'm old enough to sort of uh, hark back to those days where if you wanted to take pictures, you had to actually just use a film camera. Uh, I, I got involved primarily because I just like documenting things a lot. And uh, so I, you know, I would travel a lot and I'd have, always have a compact camera with me and I'd always be taking uh, photographs. And then in the light, late 90s, it got a little bit more serious. So I, I, um, I, I started getting uh, better cameras like uh, the Nikon SLRs uh, and, and not just traveled. I started taking photography around where I lived, which, which, which wasn't something I you know, primarily did. And yeah, it got to the point where in the late 90s, early 2000s, I actually was starting to look at doing some pro work. I was doing some semi-pro work. I, I did a couple of weddings. I did uh, um, some work for an agency um, from a news perspective. I did some wildlife photography um, and got a, uh, uh, a special mention at the BBC Wildlife Awards. Uh, but And I, I was at a point at that point uh, during the early 2000s where I even considered going pro, fully pro, and uh, realised that 
digital was coming. It was getting very more consumerized. Um, I was very good at what I do for a living. Um, and it'd be a nice balance to just make money doing what I do really well for a living and then just enjoy the photography. Sure. It sounds like uh, it was sort of an interesting journey up, up to this point. Um, so how did that kind of um, form around this notion of, uh, you know, uh, collecting cameras basically, or just adding them over, you know, more and more to your collection? It, it actually happened in two parts. The first part was I collected um, a few cameras for display. I was living in London at the time and I, I collected a few, I remember the first camera I bought to put up on display, which is purely from a collecting point of view. Um, I was, I mean, from, from a usability point of view, I was using a Nikon uh, F5 and, and F70 and, and a few other cameras like that. But I collected the, the Kodak number one autographic, beautiful camera, um, and put it up for display. And then I thought, oh, a couple more would be nice. And interesting enough, one of the first ones was a full view. You know, the one that looks like an R2D2 type design? Oh, sure. Yep. Yep. Yes. And I had it up on display for years and it, you know, in bright in sun, in sunlight and all sorts of things. And then about 14 to 15 years later, when I got a bit more serious in collecting, and I'll loop back to that in a moment, but I opened it, I went to open it up and realized there was actually film sitting in it and um, had it processed. And it was a wedding in the 50s in, in, in the UK. So it was just strange that this thing had been sitting you know, in London and then back in Sydney and then back in London and then back in Sydney because I'd moved back and forth a few times. Um, and I had no idea. But around 2014, I took a trip to Cambodia to do some documentary photography there. And I, on a whim, I, I took a Holger with me. And I brought, you know, I brought that with me, took some, some photos. I was quite pleased with the results. And, and then I looked at, yeah, some of the older cameras I had, like that, like the, the Kodak and the full view, and thought, I need a few more in the collection just to, to sort of make it nicer. And I bought the Nikon F, the original Nikon F. And, of course, that led to the F2, to the F3, <laughs> and so on. And, uh, and, and that's generally how I got into collecting. And as soon as I got the, the F through to the F5, yeah, which the F5 I obviously already had, where do you go from there? And that's where you start. I started expanding the collection. Right. I, 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 yeah. So I'm, I'm familiar with what happens uh, at that point in sort of the phenomenon. So um, wh where are we today with just the size of the collection, just so we have sort of a reference point? Yeah, I did, uh, I did have a look up um, expecting this question. And um, I've got about 250 cameras at the moment. I think you can see most of them behind me mm. uh, on the screen at the moment. And, and I did a bit of a breakup thinking, okay, it'd be interesting to understand what kind of cameras. And 35 of those are rangefinders. I, I document everything, by the way. That's why I've got oh, the okay. Well, that's <laughs> list of that. Um, 35 uh, rangefinders, about 54 SLRs. There's about three sub-miniatures and there's about 25 box cameras. Just And then there's a few others, obviously, that doesn't add up to the 250. But what's interesting from that breakup in terms of format is you start looking at the the um, 35 millimeters, about 126 of those are 35, 38 of those are 120. There's about 14 127 format and there's about five large format cameras. Wow. Well, it's quite quite a collection, and I'm impressed by the the way that it's organized. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my room at 
like 300 cameras and I couldn't tell you how many of each I have. Um, I would just stare pretty much and say at least two or something like that. So um, it's a great way to sort of um, be able to reference your collection and get a sense of how it's growing and, and the, the kind of things that you're uh, interested in, uh, in particular. Um, in, in terms of um, that range of rangefinder to SLR to, to um, box camera, et cetera, um, do you find yourself sort of focusing on specific regions or choices of country or things like that? I mean, I know that, that your interest in Nikon is pretty distinct. Um, does, it, does it sort of move out from there in other directions? It does. It does. I mean, one thing I did do with the, the, the Nikons is I do have one of each type of SLR and, and a lot of the compacts um, that, that they've ranged through. But then the, the collection started growing. I got more interested in not necessarily, you know, regional cameras. Um, a lot of them are Japanese cameras, just, just mm -hmm. by default, just by the, the fact that there's so many types of Japanese cameras. Um, I'm starting to get a little bit more interested in Soviet cameras. But an interesting one is I've actually collected a few Australian cameras as well, which most people wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily look into. Mm-hmm. What is the um, the scope of of the, the the kind of collecting that you can do uh, in terms of Australian cameras regionally? I mean, um, you know, I, I imagine they're not as obviously well known as some of the other regions that you've mentioned. Um, has that been something that you've been fairly successful at because you're you're where they are? Uh, yes, because I do look out for them and people don't realize what they are when they're selling them as well. I haven't been very successful getting working ones. And that's probably the exception to my collection. I, I tend to try and get working cameras that I can use and, and, and take out. Um, the Australian ones weren't necessarily built to a great standard. Um, they, they tend to be, you know, when you look at the Dalkers and the um, Acmas and, uh, and uh, a few of the others, they don't tend to have been to, built to a great standard from about the forties onwards. Okay. And is that, is that basically the reference point for when Australian cameras sort of began to develop in that period of time? No, they, they actually developed earlier and they were a better, a better range of camera earlier. Um, obviously the listeners might be able to see this, but behind my, um, my left shoulder is a eight by 10 camera. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a Baker and Rouse camera. Um, Made either in the late 1890s or the early 1900s, and uh, and and you can start to see the quality of the cameras there. This one obviously needs a bit of restoration. Um, the bellows are gone, uh, but once I've had it restored, it's it's quite interesting in the quality you got there. And then you have one of my yeah my favourite looking cameras, um, which is the Austral Number no. Four Roll Film Camera, which is a three and a quarter by four and a quarter roll camera, mm. which um, if I remember correctly, is either a 108 or 118 or a 124 for, uh, format film. I haven't quite sort of nailed that down, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a very uh, steampunk looking camera made yeah, it's in beautiful. around 1906, you know, with a pneumatic shutter and, and um, lots of brass and chrome and, and brown leather and brown bellows, which is interesting. So uh, you get those older ones, which are just beautiful works of art. And then it looks like in the 50s in Australia, they went into making the more, you know, the plasticky type things. Um, sure. Uh, that's a beautiful camera. And, you know, <clears throat> cameras like that sort of embody some of what I 
kind of feel towards collecting cameras and that is um and i've been fairly focal about this uh, that the camera should sort of stand on their own as sort of iconic representations of a moment in photographic history um and i think that one is a really good um sort of representation of that idea you know and we could probably pinpoint a few others in in our mutual collections that sort of stand out in that way um but that's that's very interesting and um so so when you look at the breadth of the collection then and i know you mentioned that you're you're starting to sort of uh turn an eye towards soviet cameras um how profoundly do you connect when you sort of feel like you want to move in that specific direction so basically how voracious is your appetite when you say okay i'd like to look at soviet cameras that's a very dangerous question because you have to be very <laughs> um, because there's so many interesting Soviet cameras. Um, if you dive into there, I could be like, um, I don't know if you know Vlad. I think you've had Vlad on the show oh, previously. Yeah. Interview, sure. Yeah. Before yeah. you know it, you could be you know, you know digging out of a basement, so you could actually just house a collection that big. Um, mind you, his collection is quite special. Right. Uh, right. The. I'm probably more interested at the moment in just sort of dipping my toe at the moment. I'm right. trying some of the, you know, the the, the half-frame cameras, uh, playing around with some of the more popular, you know, fun cameras like the Lubitel and mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Um, they're, they're, prob they're, they're my initial pieces, but I've also collected Zorkies and um, Kia 4s and, mm -hmm. and, and so on because of my love for rangefinder cameras sure sure i i can um i can understand that um um uh, my my uh, uh own personal experience with collecting began with soviet cameras and then i sort of branched out from there um and yes there is a broad range of them uh, what's interesting about um vlad vladislav's um uh, approach is that it's really based on variance and the, the nuance of differences and things like that. When you when you decide that you are sort of looking for a specific camera, um, what is the driving force behind that interest? Um, so let me give you an example. Um, uh, for instance, I have a um, a Topcon um, a Bassler Topcon B. Uh, and they made it best for Topcon C. Um, the difference is almost insignificant. And yet I wouldn't mind having one for my collection. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in what drives you to sort of get a feeling for wanting a specific camera. Yeah, it's interesting um, in that sense that I don't tend to try and get the, the different variations. I, I tend to try and get a camera of a particular genre or particular make to mm -hmm. build out the collection. Um, when I mentioned I had all the Nikon SLRs before, for instance, I don't necessarily would look at all the different Nikon mats. I would look at the electronic Nikon mat and I would look at the, the manual, yeah, the mechanical Nikon mat. Uh, and, you know, maybe get one or two of those each, but I wouldn't necessarily try and build out that whole collection um, with those minor variations. I understand. Well, I, I, that makes sense because then that that kind of keeps you at a certain limit, and you can branch out in other directions without 
being completely overwhelmed by one particular camera brand or specific designation. Um, let's let's kind of circle around a little bit and talk about um, sort of the role of the cameras in your collection. Um, I know you mentioned that you like to have them sort of operational. Do you do you attempt to to shoot just about? I mean, I know that's a lot of cameras, but do you try and shoot everything that you have in your collection? I do. I, not necessarily everything all the time. There's cameras I go back to, like, for instance, the my M3 and my M2, or my favourite, the Mamiya 7. They're my using cameras. Mm -hmm. There's uh, a lot of cameras that I will use a few times. I'll try out and say, okay, this is not necessarily something that's going to be practical to use you know, more often than not, and but I'll use it just to make sure it works and and enjoy it and really give it a test. One thing I do with my website with with photo thinking is I try and live with the camera for a while. I, I don't run one roll through it and, and say, okay, I've tested it and I'm going to write about it. I, I really want to give it a, a, a good go for, you know, six to eight weeks at least. Mm -hmm. And that does mean I don't post as often, but it means I get to, to really understand the camera and understand who it was aimed for and, and what kind of usage you know, is best for it. I understand. Let's, let's um, talk a little bit about um, photo thinking um, for a moment. Um, it's a um, well organized and and it, always an excellent read um you know i turned to it for reviews of cameras um and uh i think it's well informed um and i appreciate the content um does it inform your choice of purchasing or obtaining cameras for your collection i mean is there sort of a symbiotic relationship between you and the blog that suggests i'm going to go in this direction there is, but the blog tends to follow the direction I want to take with what I want to use <laughs> and try out. And, and the reason I started it was um, specifically for that reason. I would be buying these cameras. I'll be trying them out. I'll be photographing things. And I thought, well, I can do one or two things. I can either just, just take the photographs and post them on Instagram and they're gone in 24 hours or you know, on Facebook or whatever. Or I can write about and let people know about these cameras and understand, you know, and, you know, be a bit more informed on what they want to buy and possibly use. Um, a good example of that is one of my first reviews was the, the Percale one, mm -hmm. the, the Voigtlander. And even to last week, I had someone contact me and say, Oh, I'm trying to decide between the one and two, what's the difference. And, you know, he bought one and, uh, and he's really happy with his choice, but, and I feel very happy to have actually advised someone, um along the, those lines uh on something that they, they're getting enjoyment out of when you I, I think that's a great role for the blog actually you know i think it's really nice that it can um kind of mold um a a perspective or your perspective and allow somebody to really engage in a in a way that that um helps them to make those kinds of decisions um, it's nice to see how photo thinking is kind of working in that direction. Um, what is the, um, when you're thinking about a camera that you're going to review, um, where, how is this weighted in terms of the description of the camera and the aesthetics of it versus actually going out and shooting with it in terms of, um, you know, what do you think the selling points are of a camera? 
Yeah, that, that's um, something I've had to sort of wrestle with in, in terms of trying to get the balance right. And I don't think I'm there yet. I, th- I still think there's a bit of work to be done there. But primarily it's the shooting experience that I want to weigh it against. You know, how, how did I find it? Did I enjoy it? Did I find it difficult? Were the results good? Um, is it a lot of effort for sub suboptimal results or vice versa and, and so on? The next part is some information about the camera. Mm-hmm. So if someone actually does come across the camera, they can look it up and say, okay, how do I use this? What does this do? What does that do? Because look, referring people to manuals doesn't always work. I'm, I'm terrible, for instance. I, yeah, I'll, I'll download a manual for each camera I get, but do I look at it? Not necessarily. <laughs> um, and then a little bit of a historical aspect to place it where, where this mm-hmm. camera came from. Uh, but nowhere near what Mike does. Right. Mike, Mike's superb. He does a lot of research and um, he he has a lot of knowledge, which I can't even get close to. So my, mine is, okay, it was real, you know, a bit of information when it was released uh, to give people some context of the kind, you know, the kind of vintage it is mm-hmm. rather than, than a historical aspect of the company or anything. Right. And, and I think, you know, I think that's what's what I was what I was basically saying was that, you know, the balance of your of photo thinking is very nice because you do get a sense of, um, you know, not only the functionality of the camera and a little bit of the history of the camera, but you do get a much more sort of rigorous um, analysis of how the camera functions out there in the world. And I think that's important for, you know, making informed choices if you want to add a camera to your collection um, as a shooter or even as just sort of an additional, um, I don't like to use the term shelf queen because I don't believe in that term, but um, as an additional part of the collection, let's just say that. Mm. Um, what, what um, when you look at your collection and you think about it in terms of the, the scope of, of, of the different kinds of cameras, how about format wise? Are there anything that uh, kind of stands out as sort of unusual? I know you mentioned um, the Australian cameras have an odd um, film format. Is there anything um, else that kind of sticks out like um, uh, that you struggle getting film for or anything like, you know, 127, that kind of thing? Yeah. 127 is, it's funny enough becoming a bit easier. Um, I, I do come across it every so often. And uh, I recently bought some uh, very, uh, very chrome pan. I think it was called, uh, from from the 1960s, which I just shot with, so I was really impressed that that still worked quite nicely. Um, the the sub miniature is probably the hardest one to get the, the film for, uh, and because I, I prefer to go out and shoot and not necessarily muck around with slicing film or or even developing my own film, uh, I yeah you know, I get a bit lazy and go oh, okay I'll leave that I'll leave that. But having said that, when I did get some film for like it was the Kiev 30, the, the little mm-hmm. um, spy, spy camera. Yeah. Uh, I loved playing around with that. That was superb. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I think people around Sydney were wondering what the hell is this guy running around with this tiny little thing <laughs> and clicking away. <laughs> but uh, uh, so the sub-miniatures are a little bit harder to, to deal with. Um, and probably when I want to start to try and use, and I haven't tried that, is that Austral one I showed you before, the three and a quarter by four and a quarter mm-hmm. roll film. I'll have to get adapters for that because obviously that film does, doesn't exist any longer. Um, I do tend to take a little while to sort of work myself up to doing those, but I primarily use 120 and uh, 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. 
Understood. Yeah, I think that's, well, since it's the easiest film to get, I think a lot of us tend to move in that direction. Um, when you're faced with this decision, and I ask um, just about everybody who's who's on the show, um, looking at your collection and trying to decide what you're going to choose to go out and shoot with, um, how does that decision happen? That's where I think my organization skills work to my benefit. I, I apart from the cameras that I know that I want to use for my personal usage, like I mentioned the M3 before and, and, and so the, the Mamiya 7, I, when I do pick a camera that I'm going to use for the next couple of months um, and that I may write about, that's the camera I reach for. I don't even enter the equation, oh, should I go and pick this today because it's, you know, take a bit of a fancy for that. It's if I want to, you know, and when I say I select a camera for a couple of months, it's, it's per format. So I'll pick a 35 millimeter SLR, I'll pick a compact, I'll pick a, um, a 120 camera that, I, you know, maybe a TLR, for instance, a particular TLR to use. And I do restrict myself to just grabbing those. And they tend to come off the shelf and live in the bag ready to go. Mm-hmm. So that kind of just removes that whole indecision of staring at the wall and, um, you know, three and a half hours later, saying oh the light's gone and it's dark outside now yeah i can i can identify with that problem i face that um pretty much constantly um but it's interesting that in your particular case because you're working towards sort of uh the the means to an end which is to say you know maybe this camera is going to end up on the blog on photo thinking um you know i'm going to focus more attention on you know, working it through its paces and things like that, rather than, you know, a situation where I walk into my room and say, what camera should I shoot with today? And then I just stand there for 10 minutes and you're right, the light's gone and then the next day shows up. But um, I think it's interesting because of that, that quality of your work that you can direct the attention to it specifically and i and i think that that probably would help in in and and again making those not only informed decisions but also presenting uh, interesting content in a way that is accessible to a reader so um that's that is thank you actually yeah very um i I like that too i like that model i think it works and it's clear clear that it does um let's kind of step out of um the um step away from the blog just for a few minutes and let's talk about um the cameras themselves um is there anything um in the scope of your collection that uh you look at and you wish you could add to the collection but you just haven't been able to to achieve yet or reach that i, I don't want to use the term grail camera but what's your grail camera <laughs> uh, look and and this is purely very superficial wanting <laughs> this camera but it's um, the Lucateur. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The, the one from made from the jeweler. Um, oh, okay. This, this, um, which, which is not a camera that you'd visibly yeah, grab and and start walking around the street with because they're just so valuable and so so shiny. You, mm-hmm. you just wouldn't want to just go. But that's something just purely from from aesthetics point of view. I'd love to have. Interesting enough. Um, we recorded an episode of Camerosity uh, yesterday and mm-hmm. something popped up that I never even knew about and now has, has sort of become a bit of a focus, which is um, I found out there was actually an Australian Liger copy, which I didn't even ever knew existed. And, of course, now, yeah. <laughs> now 
I'm starting to search, not finding anything. And um, yeah, and as I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, it's rubbish. So no one look for it. Uh, otherwise, it's going to try to price up for me. But it's uh, it is something that suddenly sort of got onto my radar. And you'll find for the next few weeks, I'll be very, very focused, and and that you know, be a must-have. That's interesting. Um, you know, that's one of the things about um, the podcast, uh, Camerosity, is that it it generates so much interest in so many cameras that um, you know sort of are in the background, not in the mainstream. Um, unlike you know a lot of the podcasts which focus on the photographic process using mainstream cameras. Uh, you find yourself listening and thinking, hey, you know, you go on eBay, you start looking, I wonder if I should add that to my collection, so on and so forth. I've been, I found myself in that situation. Next thing you know, um, it's on your wish list. Yes, that's exactly right. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't turn away from the podcast, but I have to listen with, with you know, just carefully. You know, it's even carefully. worse when you're a co-host, though. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, Camerosity. Um, mm-hmm. How does how does the, how has the podcast changed um, your sort of collecting habits? I know that you just gave us a pretty good example right there. But can yeah, you expand it, on that? Yeah, it, it's changed um, because it's brought my interest into some cameras, which I hadn't even thought about. Um, so, uh, when I mentioned it's a bit dangerous, even, you know, especially for the co-hosts is, you know, we went into a rabbit hole with the Miranda cameras for a while. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, um, by the end of actually, by the end of one of the episodes, I'd actually found one locally <laughs> that they claimed was working. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get one up on mic and actually get a working one. And I ordered it. And of course I've used it over Christmas and it's actually a great camera to use. Uh, I've questioned whether if I used it for too much, it would continue working because they do have that, that background. Um, the, and that's changed a little bit of my view there. And then, you know, I, I've always been very much, you know, Leica and Nikon focused, and um, I do have quite an extensive Mamiya uh, collection. And then we started talking about the, the Canon rangefinders, and, and suddenly I thought, oh, these are interesting. Oh, the design of these are really good. I hadn't really thought about them. Um, I always thought them as a second tier to the Leicas. In reality, they're not. They're actually beautifully designed cameras in themselves. And I knew I'd already enjoyed the, the Canon lens on my Leica. So I thought, got to buy one of those. Next thing you know, I had a VT Deluxe and, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, a lens to go, another lens to go with that as well. Um, so it's changed my focus away from just the cameras that I was already looking at. It's expanded my view of what's out there. Uh, and I, I'm actually quite thankful on that one because it means that I'm going to have a lot more to get interested into <laughs> rather than uh, just collecting for the sake of completing a series or something like that. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, I, 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 and I think there really is some value in that. Um, you know, I, I thought it was... It was funny that that Anthony mentioned um, this notion of peer pressure. I know he was joking, but he he actually went and got a Canon rangefinder so that he could he could be informed and talk about it when um, you know this the the, the Canon um, episode uh, showed up uh, that you guys recorded yesterday. Um, but I, I I think it's it's an interesting um, 
uh, sort of perspective on how you guys sort of band together and realize that, you know, you need to be able to support these ideas, these concepts, and to be able to talk about them directly, you know, and, you know, opening the door up for other people to sort of enter the world that you guys are sort of engaged in quite literally means that there needs to be a, um, a basis of, of knowledge that everybody can sort of work off of. And I know that Mike is, is enormously well-informed, but you know, you hear you other guys sort of come in with other forms of information and additions and things like that. And it really rounds this thing out very nicely. So, you know, I, I got to give you guys a lot of credit for making this work and at a degree that I think, um, you know, many people maybe would have looked at it and said, you know, this just isn't going to happen. So um, it's, it's, we have to give it uh, a lot of credit to the people joining. Um, we, we really get uh, excited when uh, we get new people join. We, we have some regulars, um, mm -hmm. you know, like, and special guests like Nikon and Canon specialists and so on. But it's really exciting to have people come in and exactly just what you were explaining, have come in with a totally different perspective and, it's not necessarily very experienced. In some cases, it's people that have just started using cameras or started collecting them. And it's, it's brings, it grounds us a little bit to make sure that we just don't always talk and assume everybody knows what we're talking about and then the, the hobby dies with us. It's, it's how do we introduce it to the next level of people to get interested and make sure they, they enjoy it as well. That's a, and there, there's a challenge there. I know there is because I've heard, um, you know, people say, I love the webcast, but boy, sometimes it's so esoteric. And, you know, I think, yes. Um, but you know, let's, let's look at this, you know, uh, broadly and say, you know, where else is this information going to come from in mm. this sort of very controlled environment where it's being sort of presented and people can talk, talk through it and, and uh, really sort of educate um, the, the listener and the, the guests on, on those particulars. So, um, you know, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon and uh, it's clearly working. So um, great on that. I think it's just terrific. Um, let's, let's swing away from um, the podcast back to your collection a little bit. There's a couple key things that I like to ask um, when I'm referencing, um, you know, a collector's, um, sort of the, the entity of what they've got in front of them. Um, let's talk about display. I mean, obviously you've got your cameras displayed behind you. Uh, um, is that's not the entirety of the collection I'm assuming, or is it? I, it's, it's the majority of it. I mean, it goes further up and down mm -hmm. than, than what you can see on the screen here as well. Um, but I do tend to try and keep it into this room. Um, this is my home office as well. Okay. Interesting enough, I when I have my work meetings and the, the video calls, because we do a lot more work from home these days, that's actually what's in the background. I'm sitting exactly the same position you can see now. So that, that actually brings up some interesting conversations with people as well. I'm sure. But but um, the collections basically for, for people listening is in a set of uh, shelves behind glass. Um, it tends to be grouped together, like I'll have all the Nikon SLRs together, I'll have the Mamiya cameras together, I'll have the TLRs together, uh, and, and so on. Um, the folders tend to have their own, you know, column themselves, and, and, and you know, the, it, which helps me actually find things as well. <laughs> it's not just for display purposes, finding things as well. Um, the room itself is um, climate controlled. 
like the mm-hmm. house is air conditioned, but when we're not using the conditioning, you can imagine Sydney gets quite humid. Uh, I, I have dehumidifying um, um, equipment in here as well, um, including the you know, the satchels that you put within the shelves as well, because that that's very important to me. If I'm going to have this collection, I need to maintain it correctly. Mm-hmm. I can't just let it you know wilt away. So dry packs and things like that, things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is, that's a struggle for a lot of collectors to, um, you know, find that way of, of not only, you know, maintaining it in terms of the breadth of the collection, but also maintaining it in terms of its health, its overall health. Mm. And I know that's tricky. Um, When I was um, speaking with, with Anthony Rue, you know, one of the, one of his struggles is his climate from Florida and, yes. um, you know, basically every one of his cameras is, is put away in a plastic wrapped in a, in a, in a container. And, um, you know, it's a different approach. You have to think about your collection differently. Um, and, uh, I think that that informs maybe some of the choices about what you're going to add and subtract from the collection, um, in a certain way. Um, is there anything that you can think of in, a, in an instance where you've actually acquired a camera that, that didn't work and that was okay, basically? I mean, it was for the sake of having the camera, um, even knowing that it wasn't functioning? Yeah, it, it's, it's mainly those Australian cameras, mainly because I, I you know, grew up in Australia. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the, the Swift Shot, um, which is a box camera from the 50s, um, I've never found one that works. I've got one that's jammed. It's a very pretty box camera, um, but I just had to have it because it needed to show there. Um, the other ones are a bit dodgy, like the Dalka and the Acma. Um, the Acma is an interesting camera. It's a, it's it's um, it's a six twenty and one twenty camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very simple controls, um, but it's a very beautiful leather looking. Uh, camera and you you don't you know i got lucky because it's a very simple shutter and that one seems to work mm-hmm. but it, it's another one i would have bought not not just worried if it worked I, or not. I see just for the for the sake of having it as part yeah. of the collection and, and yeah. things like that well, um, what, one other one that i got which is actually sure. quite interesting and it's sort of work but doesn't work is actually um it's called a sabina and as you can tell by my my name my background's greek so it's actually the only Greek-made camera I've been able wow. to get my hands on. Really? So apparently there's one other one there, but it's super expensive, and I'm not sure I'll go down that path. But this is a 127 toy camera, and I just needed one camera that said made in Greece. That is interesting. How do you, um, you know, what's that journey like looking for something very specific um, where you where you are informed about a camera and you say, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can actually locate this thing. Um, what kind of process do you go through in order to sort of open up the door to the possibility of owning it? The first thing I do is I start looking online to find out some information about it, see if someone else has owned it or written about it or, um, or you know, is, if there, is there some history about it? Uh, next, I start going to the usual places to, to, to search. Um, I've been known to, you know, when I've been looking for specific cameras, um, like Japanese cameras, for instance, which aren't available on eBay that often. Um, just trying to think of the name. One. The Takane Mine 6 camera is one that mm. I really wanted. It's a 6x6 camera. It shoots 6x45 as well, folding out camera. Um, 
I loved the look of those. I wanted one of those. Couldn't really find them on eBay. So I started searching through Yahoo Japan, uh, where they have quite a marketplace there, and uh, through one of those broker sites. And then start looking and, and trying to understand, you know, how right their descriptions are and how how uh, how good they are. Um, that's that's the purchasing side. But the first step is, as I said, is doing some research, understanding: Do I really want this camera? Is it uh, is it you know, was it important in history, which may be relevant or not? Um, and do do I just want to use it? Mm-hmm. If I don't want to use it, and it's you know like, uh, you know, some of those plastic uh, SLRs from the, the 90s. I'll have one or two of those, but I don't, don't really want to start collecting those, for instance. I understand. Are there any um, brands uh, besides the, the ones that you've mentioned, um, Nikon, uh, Leica, that um, have really sort of garnered your interest and sort of held you in place for, um, for having a specific amount of cameras? Um, I, I mentioned the Mamiya's as well. Mm-hmm. I've got quite an extensive collection of those. I find those cameras um, unbelievably interesting because Mamiya went a totally different direction to the other camera manufacturers. They went straight to the big, yeah. They, they did nothing small. Even their sub-miniature camera is big, which which kind of, sort of <laughs> um, is strange. But it's 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 a collection that I'm quite proud of because it is actually. Um, not your usual type of collection in terms of you know the the, the rangefinders and the SLRs. Um, apart from that, I'm quite keen on the, the Yashica cameras, mm-hmm. um, and the Topcon is actually an interesting one because I went a slightly different direction. I got the Topcon camera with a few lenses, and then I had to pad out the lens collection for that one because it's just such a beautifully designed camera. Um, and the lenses are just just feel so so mm-hmm. luxurious that I just had to get those. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. probably another brand that that caught my interest a lot. I, I mean, I I can I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, you know, from the, my first purchase of a, of a Topcon camera, and I think it was a just the the RE, the Super RE. Um, you know, my collection has grown. And there is just something about that camera. It is a rock in your hand. It's so stable. Um, it feels so good. It works. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of shy away from the aesthetic because it's very rigid. The lines are very straight and sort of boxy. Um, I am drawn to that. I just think it's a compelling piece of machinery over and Me over too. And over again. Me too. It, it's a camera that looks like it shouldn't be as smooth and nice to use as it, as it actually is. Um, so it's quite, and, and that actually sort of leads to, to some of the other interests, which is I really enjoy the, the, the mid-century design cameras because I, I believe that's the peak of camera mm-hmm. design because if you look at what was beforehand is they, they were works of art beforehand, but not necessarily the most usable cameras. I think in the 50s and the 60s is where they started getting that usability right with that industrial design. Mm-hmm. And then... I think by the time they got to the 70s, especially towards the end of the 70s, they became, I don't know, ugly. Great to use, but ugly. <laughs> and, and then by the time you hit the 80s, they were all very similar. It's, it's, it's a similar journey that a lot of products have taken. So I think that's um, the top con sort of just emphasizes that because it's such a, a stark design, mm-hmm. uh, but yet 
it's got all the engineering behind it that they'd learned over the decades beforehand to get into into um, designing such such a well working camera. I, I agree. I mean, I think there's something really special about that line of cameras, and um, boy, the lenses are really attractive. Um, uh, and and I've been um, fortunate to to get the the uh, the fifty eight one four, which. Um, I think everybody sort of bows down to as as mm. the lens of choice. So uh, when I acquired mine, I felt like I had sort of reached this this plateau of of collecting success. Um, and, and, it's and, it's got a, this, and it's got yeah. this huge front oh, element, just, which just makes it gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, it? it's just when they say it's a chunk of glass, it, it truly is. And mm. you know, there's just something really special about it. So um, I, I identify with that with that interest and, and passion in that area. Um, what is there any other brands that stick out besides i know you mentioned um miranda yashika i'm sorry um mamaya uh anything else that you can pinpoint just to sort of um olympus i tend i tend to have had quite a few olympus cameras more along their compact and what they were well known for i do have the om1 uh which mm -hmm. I, I wrote about a while back um beautiful camera never quite connected with the, the shutter speed selection uh, around the lens that that's and and that's probably something that's probably going to trip me up when i start using the nikomat a little bit more as well but the uh, the actual you know the xa3 the the trip the um that range of cameras the the little half frame cameras um superb um i even in, had my son when he was about 11 years old actually shoot one of the half frame cameras and interview him for, for one of my articles um purely because of how easy they are to use and how enjoyable they are to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I, I agree. Uh, the, uh, I have a, an interest in half frame um, and you know, I enjoy the, the Olympus brand. Um, I have a, a pen F which um, is special. Um, uh, and I've, I use that on, on quite a few occasions. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the OM1 and that, um, that sort of shutter speed ring that's on the barrel. Um, that is such a point of contention in, and it can go in so many two ways, you know, mm. people either love that or they, they don't. And you, 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 you rarely find a camera that sort of draws so much attention to one specific aspect of its operation. Um, it really stands out. Interesting. Yeah. Another another brand that's actually interesting enough that not many people would, would particularly think about, um, but does draw my attention a bit, is the Bencinis, <laughs> the Italian cameras. Mm -hmm. um, not well made. They they tend to be a bit clunky to use, but the design was so different. They 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 really went all out in the, in the way they designed them and. And that's something that also, um, I must admit, it, whenever I come across one, I think, oh, okay, that looks very different to everything else. Might want to have one of those. Sure. Um, is there anything um, uh, in your collection that, that, that you're drawn to that it's a specific about that design? Like, for instance, um, I have a, a particular interest in, in um, uh, cameras that wind from the bottom. Um, I know a lot of people don't like that, but I know you mentioned the Canon um, VT rangefinder, um, which I also recently acquired. Um, and um, I love that um, that trigger on the bottom. Um, uh, there's a Soviet camera called the Drug, which operates the same way, and sort of a like a, like of it style 
um, wining. Um, anything along those lines? I mean, there's there's a lot of cameras that wine that way, and I know it's kind of probably a weird obsession to, to think of those that way, but I'm drawn to those, and I'm wondering if there's anything that kind of stands out for you like that. Um, not really. Uh, I, yeah, because I, I tend to use so many different cameras, I don't sort of get stuck on that. It's either I like a particular feature or not. Um, you know, with, with the shutter speed on the, the OM-1, I just didn't connect with it that well yeah, in terms of usage. With the VT Deluxe, that's actually quite an interesting one because I've only put one roll of film through it so far. And I just find that because I'm so used to winding on with my right hand, that I'm actually grabbing it with the wrong hand and actually um, pushing it forward that way. So uh, I, th I think I'll need a few more rolls to sort of understand whether I'll, I'll get used to that or not. Uh, but I don't particularly look for anything that's unusual in that sense. It's more in the aesthetic design that, that interests me more uh, on how how the designers, you know, try to make the camera stand out while maintaining its functionality. Okay, I think that's an interesting point, um, which kind of leads me to my next question, and this is something that I prompted you with um, recently. Um, of the collection and besides that gorgeous camera that's uh, over your shoulder there, um, which camera do you think stands out as perhaps the most beautiful or, or attractive in the way it's designed? I, I think, I mean, that, that's definitely up the, the top there, the, the Austral number four. Um, there's, there's a couple that from a design that look really beautiful, I, I really enjoy. One is I've got a World War II Graflex, mm -hmm. and I just enjoy the, the, the starkness of that one. It's just black, and it just it's just the camera's all business. And I really just enjoy how it looks all business too. Um, but there's another one that sort of pops up, which is the um, Nikon Flex. Now, that's a TLR that was built, um, I think it was in the 50s or the 60s. And it's um, interesting enough, they actually started off with um, the name Nikon Flex with 1K. And I think they Nikon sort of came in and said, uh, you don't really want to use that name. And they went to a couple of Ks. <laughs> and um, I've got two of those, got a black one and a silver one. Now, the silver one is just gorgeous because all the gears of that TLR are on the outside. Really? And, and, and that's what I really enjoy seeing on that one because, you know, the, the viewing lens and the taking lens are connected by these gears that you can actually see spinning. Mm-hmm. I understand that it sounds pretty spectacular. Um, so let's, let's kind of go to the opposite side of that scale, because I also asked you this, um, the probably the least attractive camera in your collection, the one that stands out. Uh, probably the Mamiya Super 23. That is a ugly cam. I love it to bits, by the way. <laughs> and it, has caused me a lot of pain because you can get a lot of things wrong with that camera. If um, yeah, nothing's connected, it, it's one of those cameras that was designed by committee and none of the committees actually talk to each other. So nothing's connected and you can make mistakes, but it also means the design of the camera was put together by committee. Someone designed the box, someone else designed the lenses that fit on there. And, then, and the lenses themselves actually change from lens to lens on how they operate, how the levers on them operate. So, there's nothing consistent about it. Um, and then you have this great big handle on them, generally on the side, which just, 
just doesn't make sense because it's on the left-hand side and it, 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 it's, it's just weird. So very ugly camera, but I love it to bits. Understood. Um, are there are there cameras in the collection um, that uh, just are a challenge in terms of of their operation? But uh, there's no way besides that particular camera that you just mentioned. There's no way that you would you would let them go simply because of what they represent, maybe historically or or just in the context of your collection. Yeah. I one of the cameras I never really got to terms with is the um, Retinet, the Kodak Retinet. Uh, and there's a few cameras in this kind of design that that, that sort of bother me. It's where it locks the EV values. Mm. So when you want to try and manually control them, you're, you're kind of locked in and you have to you know, run your fingers in all sorts of angles to try and get them to use. It's, it's, I didn't enjoy using that at all. Um, yeah, while the Retina I, I really enjoyed, the Retina I just didn't like at all. But it's significant because it was a camera that was designed by Kodak for the masses, um, and it, it and to make it easy for people to use, and at that and for most users that's fine. They'll set a, a value and then they'll move it up and down, and, and it'll bring both the shutter speed and the aperture through. But for me, it just was very very frustrating. I don't want to use it again, but I wouldn't get rid of it either. I understand. I mean, that's, it's funny you should mention the whole EV lock thing, because I think that's another area where a lot of people go in a lot of different directions, um, either loving it or hating it. I think most collectors uh, don't mind. Shooters probably do. Um, I have to say there's a f few cameras in my collection that um, are f I find very frustrating. Um, uh, the Vitessa... Um, with the ultra lens has an EV scale, which is very difficult to manage. And I find that very frustrating because the camera is so interesting and kind of fun to use. Um, but it's just something that sort of, I guess we deal with um, mm. and as, as sort of a struggle. Um, so this, this kind of leads me to uh, sort of the big question at the end here. And I, I pose this and, you know, I don't mean to be um, sort of a, a nihilist or anything like that, but um, you know, I can't help but thinking about something that you posted just a few days ago where there was con some concern about obtaining film in your area, that prices mm. have gone up and that there's become more scarce. So I almost hate to ask this question, um, but um, if there were a hypothetical situation where there were no more film, there was no more film to shoot uh, anywhere, inaccessible um would you still collect the cameras i would uh because I, I i collect them primarily to use but i also collect them because of their design they represent a, a you know an engineering feat as humans that we've actually been able to capture light and and actually you know capture it in a way where we start recording his, history uh and it becomes permanent, you know, if it's well maintained, of course. That's the first time we've done that. And cameras represent how we did that. And it's only, you know, a couple hundred years old at most that we've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's important. Um, but, yeah, I equate it to something like, for instance, I, I used to collect some watches, you know, like Swiss watches and, and so on. Do I still like to use the Swiss watches and have something that's beautiful on my wrist rather than 
you know, an, an Apple Watch or something like that? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, you know, it represents a functionality for its time, which was very important and very well made and engineered to, to an extreme. I would rather that than something that can, you know, beep at me and do lots of things with screens and so on. So I equate the cameras in the same sort of sense that you would, even if you can't shoot them, then you want to be able to see, you know, the evolution of them and of how we started capturing uh, life and documenting it. I understand. I think that's a, a not only a, a healthy perspective, but I think um, an informed one as well. And it certainly lends itself to um, sort of connecting us in this community to something which obviously is very special to all of us. And that is, um, you know, the camera as a representation of some not only moment in history, but of a manufacturing process um, and of a uh, design process, which, um, you know, it, it just, it prompts us to think very um, sort of um, spe- specifically about connecting ourselves to uh, a specific camera in our collection. And I think that's important. And I mean, I, I find myself walking into the room where I have my cameras and, you know, I may not be shooting any of them, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll just pick one up and kind of hold it and look at it and operate it and look at the way that it controls, uh, you know, function and things like that. Um, and I think what you're saying sort of speaks to that. Um, I've, I've been known to sit there whining an empty camera on just because I, of the feel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, 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 you know, I mean, it, you just feel like you want to connect with it in that way to kind of get a sense of um, how it operates and 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 how that this this device seems to function so precisely in so many cases. Some cases not so much, but um, we're sort sort of proud of what they represent in our in our in our culture, and I think that that speaks to um, how you connect us to photography through photo thinking and your contributions to um, the Camerosity podcast. So, um, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your, your perspective. I think it's um, really interesting to see um, not only the cameras behind you, and, and, uh, but to hear you speak about them um, uh, individually and to address their nuances and cat- cat- uh, the, the specific categories and things like that. So, um, and, and I think that kind of brings us to the end of our conversation, Theo. Um, uh, I, I, I just want to say that it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I have enjoyed listening to you um, on the podcasts. I've enjoyed um, reading your content on photo thinking. I hope that it continues and grows. Um, I'm always interested in hearing about what you've acquired or obtained or what you're searching for in your collection. Um, I think it's it's interesting to see a fellow collector who um, endeavors to um, connect with a camera so that it can expand the collection, not just so much to go out and shoot with it, but to um, give the collection a little bit more depth. Let's just say that. Thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed my, my time here as well. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you very much, Theo, and um, I appreciate your time, and um, we look forward to seeing more of your work and um, more of the content from Photo Thinking and your contributions um, on the Camerosity podcast. 
And uh, we'll be back with more from the ephemeral machine. And we're back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I want to thank Theo for his time and the chance to chat with him and learn about his film camera collection, its development and growth. His perspective on acquisition, attention to history and detail, and his robust process of assessment and evaluation offer a unique and invaluable opportunity for the film photography community. That is the opportunity to learn, to engage, and to revel in this fascinating area of interest and practice. It is said that knowledge is power. And with Theo Panagopoulos's continued support of our community as editor of Photo Thinking and a co-host of Camerosity, we can only grow stronger every day. This is Michael Kaplan. Thank you for joining me, and I will see you on the next episode of The Ephemeral Machine.